Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very much for joining me here right now. So I just finished talking with Robert S. Boynton about his new book, The Invitation Only Zone, The True Story of North Korea's Abduction Project, and this came out in 2016. Now, this is a book that's a real pleasure to read. It's super gripping, while also being a really fascinating introduction to a crucial period, actually a series of nested crucial periods, not just in the history of North Korea and the history of Japan's relationship with the Koreas, but also in world history, more broadly speaking. So you'll hear us talking about this in a moment. But basically, what the book does is it takes us through a kind of long history from the late 19th century through the 21st century of engagements between um, positive, negative, neither, both, between Japan and Korea in its various forms around the notions of um, identity and race and ethnicity, and selfhood, and citizenship. And you'll see history, intertwined histories of Japan's colonial project, the relationship between Japan and Korea on various different levels and in various different ways, with the stories of the abductions, or the repatriations, or the defections, or any number of other ways of getting from not North Korea, to North Korea on the part of a number of really fascinating people. Um, you're going to hear about, along the way, Japan's Indiana Jones. You're going to hear about a super badass sushi chef. Um, you're going to hear about a number of fascinating figures, um, and we get into some of their stories very briefly, but if you get your hands on a copy of the book, and I really recommend that you do so if you like a really well-written story on top of just a really fascinating story, you'll read much more about them and others. So I will leave it there and leave you to it. I really appreciated Robert making the time. Um, again, it's a fascinating book. Um, it's a great read, and this is a book that I would strongly consider assigning um, in all kinds of different classes, and I may actually think about this if I'm teaching modern East Asian a transnational history in the future. Um, I can imagine undergrads really um, just kind of super getting into this in part because it's just, like I said, a really interesting read. Okay, so I'll stop there and I'll leave you to it. Uh, as ever, thank you so much for your support of the channel, for listening, and for being here with me today. I hope you enjoy, and I will leave it at that. I'm here today to talk with Robert Boynton about his new book, The Invitation Only Zone. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Robert, and thanks not just for writing a really timely and really fascinating and really engagingly written study, but also for taking time away from your work to talk with me about it today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start at the beginning, but let's start at the beginning by starting at the end. Now, the full title of the book is The Invitation Only Zone, The True Story of North Korea's Abduction Project. And in the epilogue of the book, you talk a little bit about the genesis of the project, sort of what brought you to um, this particular project in this particular way. You mention seeing a photograph in the New York Times in October of 2002. Now, this photograph was of two middle-aged Japanese couples and a single woman descending from a plane at Tokyo's Haneda Airport. The headline was this, Tears and Hugs, 
as five abducted Japanese go home to visit. So, Robert, as a way of opening up how you came to this project and um, sort of what the genesis of this was, can you talk a little bit for us about this photograph and this moment and what brought you to the work that we're talking about today? Sure. Well, I was reading the newspaper, as I do every morning, on the morning of October 16, 2002, and I opened the New York Times to page A3 and saw this article that you just quoted from the headline uh, about uh, five Japanese who had been in North Korea for 24 years, uh, who are now returning to Japan for a visit, quote-unquote, uh, and this whole thing just sort of knocked my socks off. I, I you know, the questions immediately arose: um, What had they been doing in, in North Korea? Were they the only ones? Why were they being uh, let out now? Why were they only visiting Japan, not returning there if they had indeed been taken by force? So, you know, all these questions were running through my mind, and I, uh, you know greedily picked up the next day's paper and the next day's, and there was not a word in the Western and the American media about the fate of these five Japanese. This was uh, just over a year after 9-11, and that so thoroughly dominated the uh, coverage of uh, anything outside the United States that, uh, you know, news from East Asia practically did Exist. So I was very frustrated as I as I tried to uh, learn more, and I you know read pieces here and there. The Guardian had some good pieces. Uh, there were the Japan Times, some other places had some good pieces. But I, I it was very frustrating, uh, and I was very very curious. So the research that undergirds the book is really extensive. Um, you spent three weeks to three months in Japan and in South Korea every single year from 2008 to 2015. Now, again, at the end of the book, you talk about having written about race and ethnicity in the American context and the kinds of projects that were bringing you to Japan and to South Korea initially in the first place. But this is a lot of work um, that uh, really kind of metamorphosed, it seems, into what we have today. So can you talk a little bit about that part of it, sort of how in the course of your um, movement from an initial engagement with Japan and South Korea all the way through this extensive fieldwork there, did the project in this form develop from its initial kind of inklings to um, what we have here? Well, as I said, I first learned of the story in 2002, and I followed it for the next several years uh, on and off. Uh, you know, journalists often collect string on stories they're interested in and then uh, and hoping to use it later on. So I um, did that. Fellowship to go to Japan in 2000 from the Japan Society, and as part of the fellowship, I had to propose several stories to uh, report and look into uh, during the months I was in Japan. Uh, and one of them was the abductions, uh, which, as I said, had been sort of stewing in my mind for a long time. Uh, one of the other stories was uh, I wanted to look at Japan's largest ethnic minority, which is the uh, Korean ethnic minority known as Zainichi in, uh, in Japan. And the reason was that, you know, Japan is suffering from a, a very low birth rate and uh, has a very restrictive immigration policy. Clearly, something, uh, unless Japan is, is willing to depopulate itself uh, as thoroughly as it seems to be, uh, something has to give. And I was, you know, curious, what would multiculturalism look like in a Japanese context? And 
my test case was was looking at Zainichi and how the 600 to 800,000 Zainichi uh, long-term residents of, of Japan had fared there as, as sort of a test case for that. And I, in this, simultaneously, I was also doing reporting on the abductions, and I was lucky enough to meet some of the abductees and start talking to experts. And the strangest thing happened, which is that the two stories, the story of the abductions and the story of the Zainichi and how they were faring, uh, started intersecting with each other. And I would have people... Uh, you know, I'd be doing an interview about the abductions and they would start talking about uh, the Zainichi minority and, and possible uh, role they had played or hadn't played in the abductions. And I'd be doing uh, an interview about the Zainichi situation and the abductions would come up uh, in those things. So I saw that there was a, a connection that was sort of being played out uh, in front of me between the two. And the, the connection that I was interested in, particularly with the ethnic story, the Zainichi story, really was based on and came out of my interest in race and ethnicity in the American context. Uh, in the 90s and, and aughts, I wrote a lot of pieces for The New Yorker, for The Atlantic Monthly, and elsewhere about black intellectuals and the sort of discourse about race and ethnicity that was playing itself out in the United States, and looked at people like Ralph Ellison, Albert Murray, other writers who had, I think, very interesting uh, provocative ways to describe the African-American experience and the role that it had played uh, in the forming of American identity, which I thought was very suggestive and very helpful. And I began to see uh, ways in which this uh, debate resonated in Japan, the way that um, for all of the discrimination that uh, Zainichi suffered in Japan, uh, Zainichi played an incredibly vital role in the entertainment industry, in sports, in all sorts of aspects of uh, Japanese life. Uh, this, there had also been this very um, pronounced uh, Korean wave going on uh, in the 90s and in the 2000s, where uh, Korean culture was very much in, in, in vogue in Japan. Uh, there were all these stories about housewives learning Korean in order to watch their favorite soap operas. And I really began to sort of see how the, the role that Zainichi played in this larger Japanese society was uh, in some ways parallel to the role that African-Americans had played in American society. And that's part of what really got me going about this subject, um, you know, realizing that I could write a book uh, that was an exploration, uh, the first English language exploration of the abductions, but also would have be grounded in something a little deeper, grounded in something that I felt like other people who were writing much more from a you know, Japan studies or Korean studies perspective weren't really looking for. Now, you describe the book um, as an act of extreme journalism. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I, I compared what I was doing to what, you know, say rock climbers will do sometimes. You know, the uh, rock climbers will sometimes leave behind their ropes and climb a rock face uh, without them as a sort of act of extreme rock climbing. And I felt that in this case, you know, I, I, I tend to like uh, to prepare a lot for my uh, journalism. I do it. All my interviews are done face to face. I do them all myself. I don't uh, really uh, relegate any of the tasks to anyone else. And here, uh, to do this story, I was caught in a position where I had to rely on translators, interpreters, uh, where I couldn't simply go off and ask the questions I wanted to ask on my own, where the amount of research I 
could do was somewhat limited in terms of uh, the languages that the uh, primary documents were written in. So, you know, I felt that it was a kind of journalism that was, uh, strictly speaking, out of my grasp. But it was at a point in my career where I, that's precisely what I was looking for. I uh, recently received uh, tenure at NYU and was very grateful for that and really felt a intellectual responsibility to do something that was going to be uh, extremely difficult, uh, perhaps impossible, uh, something that uh, as an ordinary freelancer or as an assistant professor concerned about tenure, uh, I couldn't do, and now I could. So this form of what I called extreme journalism was really kind of an act of faith to say, well, you know, what are the the limits to someone's uh, 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 ambition? And uh, can the form of journalism that I teach and practice, uh, could it reveal something about this part of the world and and this extraordinary uh, episode? Awesome. And cheers to both tenure and to the kind of sense of intellectual um, and social responsibility that comes with tenure. I'm cheersing you with my mug of tea, even though you can't see it. <laughs> so cheers. We'll take a sip of this <laughs> to mark that. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Robert. And let's kind of dive in now to the story. So as the book tells us in the prologue, um, in the words of the book, people began disappearing from Japan's coastal towns and cities in the fall of 1977. Now, they were also disappearing um, in this period from other parts of Asia, from Eastern Europe, and from the Middle East. Now, one particular abduction sets the stage from the very beginning, and we really follow it as a thread, um, as a narrative thread throughout the story up to the very end. This is the abduction on July 13, 1978, of Kaoru Haisuke and his girlfriend Yukiko. Now, they take on, as I said, a really prominent role in the story, um, and we follow them throughout. So let's actually kind of open the story for listeners the way the book opens and talk about this abduction. What do we need to understand about this particular moment um, on the beach in 1978 and what happens after with Kaoru and Yukiko in order to understand um, what happens next? Well, Kaoru Hasuike and uh, Yukiko Okodo, who was his girlfriend at the time, uh, were simply at home in Kashiwazaki, which is uh, about uh, 50 miles um, uh, west of Niigata, uh, home on vacation. Kaoru was a student at Chuo University, a law student at Chuo University. Yukiko worked at a, um, at a beauty cosmetics uh, firm, Kanebo. And uh, they were, you know, simply taking a bike ride at night. It was, you know, hot. They uh, went down this long hill and went to look at a, uh, a fireworks display that was, being, uh, that was going on uh, in the water. Uh, they walked over to a uh, secluded section of the beach. And quickly, uh, one man came up to them and asked for a light, uh, at which point Kara reached into his, uh, his pockets, pulled out a lighter, and uh, three other men rushed them. Mm-hmm. They, were, they jumped them, they bound their hands and legs, they gagged them, they put them into uh, sacks, zipped them up, and then put them onto a small dinghy, which then took them out to a larger boat waiting for them about 45 minutes out. And then that larger boat uh, took them back to uh, North or to North Korea, to Chongjin. They, they, uh, uh, the next morning, they arrived there. So th- this was sort of the, the quintessential sort of typical abduction uh, that took place uh, several times to several different couples. 
that I'm aware of, and that's probably more than I'm not aware of. And you know, I use this as one because it was it was so typical, it was so random. The the the, the sea level at that particular day was the only day when uh, a boat could get as close to shore as it did. The fact that it was a, a, a new moon meant it was dark enough so that one could sneak up on someone else. There was a kind of uh, cosmic bad luck uh, that uh, fell upon uh, uh, Hasuke and, and his, uh, his girlfriend. And it really sort of just, it, 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 for me, it captured the randomness and the, the, the extreme oddness and also uh, the, the terror of, of that kind of a moment, the kind of moment that, you know, I think everyone, uh, no one fears actively, but, you know, there's, there's nothing comforting, there's nothing familiar at all about the whole situation. And it's so kind of poignant, right? They were going to get engaged, and it's this, like, beautiful moment, and so they do wind up getting married, um, th- you know, three days after they're reunited in North Korea in 1980, but lots happens in the meantime, and what happens next, we will come back to in a moment. But dot, 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 ellipsis, that's not the only thread of the story that we follow. Woven through the stories of the abductions and the particular individuals that experience these abductions, either as friends and family members or as abductees themselves um, or otherwise, we also have an ongoing thread of the kinds of historical, cultural, and social circumstances that ultimately gave rise to the conditions in South Korea and North Korea and Japan um, from which these abductions emerged. And this is where we go in Chapter 2. So in Chapter 2, we meet, well, we're, you take us into what you call the Meiji moment. Japan becomes modern. This is the title of the chapter. And we meet a figure who is familiar to people in Japanese uh, studies, but perhaps not in this context. This is Edward Morse, who comes to Japan in the late 19th century, who authors a work called The Shell Mounds of Omori, and whose story is bound up with larger issues of debates around Japan's origins, um, race in Japan, and with a particular figure who you call in here the Japanese Indiana Jones. And you know, if you use that phrase, I have to ask you about it, right? So <laughs> let's talk about um, what's happening in this early uh, part of the story. Debates about Japan's origins and, and about race, Edward Morse and Ryozu Tori the Japanese Indiana Jones. Go for it. What do we need uh, to know? Well, you know, the, the Meiji Restoration was an incredible moment in Japan, uh, the likes of which I don't think you see in most cultures, where uh, it was a culture that, for very uh, specific reasons, decided to not just open itself up uh, to outside influence, to Western influence, which is the way I had always understood it until I really started looking at it, but embraced the new, embraced the the modern in a way that that was kind of uh, uh, dizzying. Uh, anything that was new, anything that that smacked of a break with the old was was considered. Uh, one person considered the, the uh, minister of education considered changing from Japanese to English as the standard language. Uh, the entire education system was redone, which had been a fairly Confucian uh, uh, system before then, a Sinocentric one before that. So. As part of this incredible attempt to really redo society from the bottom up, uh, there was a concerted uh, 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 recruitment effort made uh, professors from the United States, from Germany, from the UK uh, to staff and build up these universities. 
And one of them was Edward Morse, uh, who had been a uh, quite a well-known, well-thought-of uh, 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 shell uh, expert in uh, working uh, at Harvard at the time, and uh, had become a real devotee of Darwin and Darwin's thought and the, the evolutionary sort of revolution that was going on at the time, which coincided very closely with the old Meiji Restoration. Uh, they were The Japanese were very interested in evolution. They could clearly tell that Darwin was, again, the new theory, that it had extraordinary explanatory power, and that it was scientific and also had social uh, dimension to it. And it was desperate for people who could uh, explain it and lecture on it clearly to the public. Morse was um, interested in going to Japan for the shells mm-hmm. and and ended up uh, giving these these standing room only uh, lectures uh, on Darwin to not just students, but to people, villagers, people in Tokyo uh, who were just interested, the general public. Um, and these things would go on for hours and they'd be, you know, people would be sitting on the floor or standing. I mean, it was not comfortable and they were just wrapped. So he, he became a very important figure for, for the way that Darwin's ideas of evolution and sadly the sort of pseudoscience of a race, the Western pseudoscience of race, became, uh, was introduced to uh, Japanese thought. And it was, uh, you know, it, the Japanese did what any society does when it uh, takes on appropriate knowledge. It also made it its own. It, it, it refashioned it. It reworked it. And the pseudoscience of race became a very important part in the birth of uh, the discipline of anthropology uh, in Japan, which very quickly became defined or at least uh, oriented itself around the question of who were the Japanese in this new scientific world. If you left behind the various creation myths that uh, the Japanese had used to narrate their their national identity, and you now took on this new uh, scientific regimen, uh, who were the Japanese? What, what, what had come before that? I mean, the whole idea of prehistory and the idea that that, that one of the history uh, of a people could be uncovered through archaeology and through that kind of evidence. Those were very; those were ideas that were um, animated by the ideas of evolution. So the Japanese very quickly uh, started studying this, and uh, a number of the people uh, who studied it were students of Morse. Uh, a man named uh, Tsuboi Shogoro was one of them, and the other one was, as the person you uh, mentioned. Uh, Tori Rioso. Yeah, that's right. So Tori Rioso was this incredible figure. Uh, this uh, young man who was uh, quit uh, school because he was bored. Uh, I think in fifth grade was you know largely an autodidact. Uh, was what his parents were quite wealthy. They uh, bought him one of the very first English uh, Japanese dictionaries. He read like a maniac. He studied the archaeological. Uh, remains around his hometown, the island of Shikoku. And he um, he went to uh, the uh, uh, Tokyo University to study with Suboy and became this kind of rollicking uh, archaeologist going out uh, into the field constantly. Uh, and one of the reasons he went out into the field was that uh, Suboy started the, uh, the first journal of anthropology um, uh, in Japan. And one of the things that he insisted on was he wanted to have uh, the anthropologists and the archaeologists who wrote for his journal, uh, he did not want sort of armchair intellectuals. He 
wanted people who actually went out into the field and gathered new evidence. You know, he, he had in mind a very, uh, a very principled notion of what the scientist does. And, so, and, and, and Torrey was, was perfectly happy to go do that. So he was writing dispatches back uh, from, you know, Manchuria, from Korea, from all over the place. They were being translated. Uh, his work was being translated to French and elsewhere. Uh, and he just, you know, became this crusading guy who actually also made a lot of money through his popular journalism. I think of him sort of like a, I don't know, sort of like a Stephen Jay Gould or something like that. Someone who was able to write for the popular audience as well as for the specialists. And he, you know, was able to travel. Um, this was coincided with the early years of Japanese colonialism. So he was able to travel oftentimes with or just after the army had pacified or you know, annexed an area. So in Manchukuo uh, or in uh, other parts of China and Korea, he would often arrive uh, just after or with the, uh, the military and um and, and his studies of these of these groups and were, were you know very good uh, uh, anthropology although he was a little bit in love with doing things like you know measuring head size which was sort of the rage at the time but um, he still he did very uh, very good precise uh, work but much of that work in addition was used by the Japanese colonial authorities both to understand and pacify the uh, local people. And uh, so, you know, though I think his work was intellectually honest and ingenuous, there were some very disingenuous uses to which it was put. Right. And so one of the really interesting things that happens as we move through the chapters is the story um, really unfolds uh, according to a thread that explores the consequences of what you've just said, including... Japanese Indiana Jones for the rest of the story. And as we move through the book, um, you bring us into the context of Japan's takeover of Korea as um, what the book calls an act of slow motion colonization. Um, you mention here in chapter four that by the end of World War II, four million Koreans were living outside of their homeland. And we need to understand this. And we need to understand the broader context of um, the kind of guerrilla campaigns that emerge um, alongside this by Kim Il-sung and the way he fashions himself in a role akin to the Japanese emperor. There's lots of historical context that we're going to be getting that's going to inform how we understand these abductions. So we'll get back to that in a moment. But let's ping pong back, dot, 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 another ellipsis, to Kaoru um, and his girlfriend, Yukiko. All right. So they're re reunited in North Korea. They're married and they live in um, what's called an invitation only zone. Um, you take us into kind of the texture of their lives there, which is really, really fascinating. And I want to just mark the fact of that for listeners. It's absolutely fascinating to read about that. Um, you tell us about um, Kaoru making golf balls using glued together cotton swabs. There's just all kinds of things about their quotidian life that's really fascinating. Okay, but the, there's a looming question here that might be in the minds of listeners and that I think we have to attend to, to sort of understand how to move forward from these cotton swabs, glued together golf balls, how do they get there? And that is this, who are these people who are abducting people like um, Kaoru and, and Yukiko and why bother, right? So who's doing this and why would they bother abducting people from the beaches and cities like this? Like what were they hoping to achieve? 
That is the uh, uh, $64,000 question, uh, of course, about the abductions. Why go through all this anyway? And the answer uh, that is probably most accurate is also the one that is hardest to get one's mind around, especially in 2016, where uh, North Korea is uh, you know, an economically challenged, to say the least, country, uh, is that there was a belief that would help North Korea reunify the peninsula and spread Kim Il-sung thought and Juche philosophy throughout Asia, including Japan, uh, and literally through the world. That this was really a point in which uh, North Korea had a sense of really manifest destiny, that it had outproduced the South from the end of the Korean War in 1953 into the 60s, uh, perhaps even into the 70s, and really felt that it was on the right side of history. The abductees were uh, recruited, uh, first of all, uh, with the hopes that they could spy on behalf of North Koreans, these Japanese, uh, who had been you know, snatched off of beaches, so you can see the level of, of self-confidence that, that is operating here. And if, for whatever reason, they didn't spy for them, that they would then train North Korean spies to pass as Japanese. Uh, one of the things the North Koreans did was a number of the abductees were people with very little uh, personal history who had never had a driver's license, never had a passport. Uh, they would take their identities, forge passports, forge driver's license, and then let their spies operate uh, throughout Japan and around the world uh, under those identities. I mean, a Japanese passport at this time was pretty much an uh, open entree to anywhere in the world, and that was something very valuable to the uh, North Koreans. So the, the, the origins of the project may seem slightly absurd to us, but what, what one has to remember is that the North Koreans had actual empirical evidence that this kind of thing works because they had been abducting in the very first phase of the abduction project, had been abducting South Korean fishermen in the 50s and 60s. And, uh, but when they abducted them, they would take them uh, to the mainland and they would essentially parade them around, uh, bring them from banquet to banquet. Uh, they, would be, they would be greeted in, in every town by women with flowers saying, oh, please stay, please stay. These were largely illiterate, uh, very poor fishermen who were being told that, you know, here in the North, you are the hero. You are the center of the North Korean experiment. You're treated terribly in the South, and here you will be treated very well. Um, a number of these fishermen ended up staying in North Korea. Uh, some of them were held back, back by force, but most of them left and went back with a very favorable attitude towards the North. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the kind of the kind of transformative experience of seeing the North Korean experiment and being won over by it was something that the, the North Koreans had seen with their own eyes. It, it was perhaps, you know, after the past due date by 1977. But of course, you don't know that at the time. Uh, you still have the hubris. You still have the optimism uh, of a decade before. And, and this was largely the atmosphere in which the abductions took place. Mm-hmm. So. I'm sure, I'm not sure, but I would imagine when you give interviews about this book, 
everyone asks you to talk about Kim Jong-il's abduction of the South Korean um, Orson Welles, the film director, Mm -hmm. and his ex-wife, Elizabeth Taylor of South Korea. So this is going to be the interview where I don't ask you to talk about that. Instead, what I'd like you to talk about um, is a figure that you raise in the context of um, the discussion in Chapter 6 as we sort of move through this story of um, how to understand this abduction as a kind of statecraft. And you introduce us to this super badass sushi chef. This is how I think about him, Kenji Fujimoto. Now, Kenji Fujimoto um, takes us into his experience um, working with and working for Kim, um, in which, and I'm going to quote this because there's no way I can rephrase this um, in a way that's going to remotely touch this quote, in which, at banquets, Kim, quote, insisted that the sashimi be so fresh that the mouth of the fish was still moving. When drunk, he would command his guests to strip and dance nude. Okay, so let's talk about this sushi chef. Who is he? Um, can you talk about your experience here and how or in what significance does he have and does this relationship with Kim have to the story? Well, Kenji Fujimoto, which is a pseudonym, uh, was a uh, Japanese sushi chef who answered a, uh, a, a essentially a, a wanted uh, you know posting for a job uh, in the uh, nineteen uh, early nineteen seventies uh, for a, uh, a restaurant which he then found was in Pyongyang. It was uh, it was a restaurant that uh, that the wages were far greater than you know discovered why when he got to Pyongyang the, the goal of hiring him to do that was really to train a sort of uh, a whole cadre of sushi chefs and other so, so that uh, again you know North Korea could engage in this modernizing process um, he came to the attention of Kim Jong-il uh, one night when uh, Kim Jong-il and his sort of uh, his, his, his party came to the restaurant and um, and ate there and the two men became very close friends uh, he hired or I don't know if if you're, if you're running North Korea, you don't hire someone. You just tell them to come work for you. And um, so Kim, uh, I'm sorry, so uh, uh, Fujimoto became the uh, sort of head chef, really, for Kim Jong-il and would preside over these incredible parties. And he also would go on these incredible um, shopping sprees uh, on behalf of uh, Kim. You know, Kim was this guy who knew the best place to get everything, though he had almost never left the country. Kim Jong-il went to China several times. He was born in Russia, uh, contrary to the myth about his being born um, in in North Korea, and uh, perhaps went and spent a good part of his childhood there, but he really seen very little of the world. Uh, yet he knew, you know, the best fish was in Tokyo. The best uh, lamb was in New Zealand or Denmark. The best uh, clothing was in England. The best wine was in France. And a lot of this, uh, I felt that, that Fujimoto was a good way to help explain uh, the way that Kim Jong-il uh, related to the rest of the world as essentially this consumer. Um, and the fact that he used a Japanese chef uh, who was not abducted, who was hired, was, I thought, uh, uh, sort of the icing on the cake in that, it, it, it to me, it represented another dimension, a much less tragic dimension, where by Japanese culture and Japanese figures were the way that, that Kim Jong-il was able to experience, look at, and, and, and really um, 
connect to the outside world. So the two of them became sort of bros together and they would, you know, they would, they would water ski together and do all these sorts of things. In fact, um, Fujimoto, when I interviewed him, I've interviewed him a few times. I interviewed him, I think in 2008, was the first person I ever heard mention Kim Jong-un. He said, Kim Jong-un is going to be the next leader of North Korea. This is long before uh, Kim Jong-il died in 2012. So he actually has a lot of insider knowledge. He's become this sort of um, talking head on about North Korea and about the Kims in particular. Um, and, you know, I've talked to people in the intelligence service, both in Japan and at the CIA, who have uh, vetted him and found that his information was extremely reliable. So he's sort of this, this, this strange uh, figure who is kind of the, the connection between North Korea and the outside world, or between Kim, Kim Jong-un and the outside world. He also had a very dramatic reunion just two years ago when he went to uh, Pyongyang. Uh, and there's this famous picture that was on every uh, newspaper in Asia of you know, Kim Jong-un hugging uh, uh, Fujimoto. So he, he was he was this and he you know, comes off as this kind of gangster. He wears you know shades. He's got his headband on. He's sort of he's sort of in disguise. But it's this crazy look that basically screams. Meaning, hey, I'm in disguise. It's nothing. There's nothing low key about it. It's everything he does is very calculated. You know, he's the tough guy. Uh, in fact, during one of the interviews I was conducting with him, some guy who was clearly either connected to the Yakuza or was trying to make me think he was connected to the Yakuza came over and, you know, introduced himself and, you know, offered to introduce me to politicians and all these sorts of things. And then I ended up paying our bill, actually, <laughs> by the end. So, it was uh, it was a very surreal uh, trip into a, a different part of the world uh, interviewing uh, Fujimoto. So you mentioned a little bit before that it, the book is not just about abductees, and it's not just abductees who are going back to North Korea, but it's also people who went there voluntarily or sort of voluntarily. And the rest of the book, um, as we move through the chapters, chapter nine um, and thereafter, you take us into different contexts in which this is happening. And I just want to kind of mention this as we kind of open this up. So in the mid-1950s, Kim Il-sung invited Japan's Koreans to move to North Korea. And you take us into a kind of uh, the project to repatriate Koreans from Japan in 1959. Now, early in the 1960s, this becomes really interesting. The repatriated Koreans, or some of them, begin to send secret messages back home, telling the rest of their families not to come because the conditions were so bad. And there are these images of um, notes on the backs of stamps. Um, there are notes that you describe written in code. Okay, um, so this takes us into, okay, so some of these um, Koreans in 1959 departed from Niigata, and you take us into your own experience um, later in the book, in chapter 11, traveling to Niigata, and you describe this as a city psychologically divided into abduction land and repatriationville, to investigate the disappearance of a young girl who was abducted while walking home from badminton practice in 1977. This is Megumi uh, Yokota. Okay, so can you open up um, the story of Megumi Yokota for us? What do uh, we need to know to understand what you think is the kind of core significance of this particular case to the larger story that the book is telling? Megumi Yokota was this uh, 13-year-old girl who was abducted from uh, her hometown of Niigata, say, 
100 feet from her front door one evening after badminton practice uh, on her way home with some friends. Um, she has become something akin to the patron saint of the abduction activist movement in Japan. This you know cute, sweet, innocent little girl whose life is forever altered and, 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 and is obviously destroyed uh, through this chance encounter with these uh, North Korean spies. Uh, it's not clear why she was abducted. They weren't typically going after children. Uh, the thought is that they misunderstood or misperceived her, thought she was an adult or something like that, uh, or were abducting someone else and she saw and then had to be taken as a, a witness. It, 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 no one really knows. But she became um, a very important figure. But for many of the people who became uh, uh, activists and really energized by this issue in the uh, 80s and 90s and 2000s, many of them were really driven by their their empathy for uh, Mugumi Yokota. And her parents uh, became a very important driving force in the the uh, eventual association of families and others who were um, trying to bring this issue to light in Japan. So she, uh, it, it's unclear exactly what happened to her. The North Koreans claim that she uh, committed suicide in her, uh, I think her thirties. And um, they, then there was a big controversy about whether her remains were actually the remains that North Koreans gave the Japanese were actually her remains or not sort of un, uh, difficult to settle. What isn't difficult to settle is that she married a South Korean abductee, a man named Kim Yong-nam, who had been abducted uh, from South Korea when he was about 17 or 18. And uh, they married and had a daughter who is uh, the spitting image of uh, Megumi. And the daughter herself has had a daughter since then. And Mr. and Mrs. Yokota, Megumi's parents, have finally now met with uh, their granddaughter uh, in Mongolia. Uh, two years ago. Uh, so, you know, to me, she was really the heart of the movement in the sense that uh, she was the animating uh, figure for so many people. Um, and also she represented, in, and her, her fate represented this sort of strange combination of, of forces. I mean, here she is in North Korea marrying a Japanese, I'm sorry, a South Korean abductee, the two of them having to essentially become North Korean having a daughter who is fully North Korean, uh, it, it, it showed some of the tangled uh, ethnic, racial, national lines that uh, the kind of blurred uh, together in this sort of upside down world of the abduction project. Great. Now, as you kind of move us forward, um, the, those lines get tangled even more in really interesting ways. Now, I won't ask you to talk too much about him because we have lots more of the story um, to get to in the remainder of our hour. But you also bring us into the story of another fascinating figure. Um, this is Sergeant Charles Robert Jenkins. He is really the, the fixture of Chapter 12, and we see him afterwards, too. Now, he was patrolling in the DMZ. And he actually defected to North Korea in the mid-1960s. And you can see him on YouTube. I checked this out to make sure that I can tell listeners. You can see him on YouTube. He actually um, becomes featured in a film or in film and on TV. Um, on TV, he is featured in a 20-episode miniseries, as you tell us about in the book, as um, Dr. Kelton, head of U.S.-Korean war operations in a show called Unsung Heroes. So listeners can actually see him acting. It's it's 
it's amazing to watch this. He thought North Korea was trying to breed a group of abductee children super spies. And so it's actually really interesting to go into um, kind of the worlds of some of the people who, you know, in in this case, left voluntarily and what they thought was going on with these abductions. And we're going to see him later on as well. Okay, so as we move forward and we meet some of these figures, we also meet um, figures associated with another offshoot of the story, part of the story, that is particularly interesting. This is the Red Army Faction. Okay, um, so you bring us into the context of the Red Army Faction, um, introduce us to the leader, Takamato Tamiya, and don't just introduce us to the Red Army Faction, but also, importantly, to the Red Army Faction wives. We have a quote here from Tamiya. We all must find women. It is our revolutionary mission to do so. Okay, Robert, who are the Red Army Faction wives? What do they have to do with the story? And how do we get to this quote from where we were and and based on where we're going? Well, the Red Army Faction was a Japanese new left uh, revolutionary group that believed in, had a theory of of what they called simultaneous worldwide revolution. They came very much out of the 68 uh, uh, riots and and protests in Japan that started off as a a protest against the American-Japanese security treaty. Uh, They were very, very far left group. And um, I I use them because their story... uh, First, it pertains, as I'm going to describe, to the abduction project. But secondly, also, again, you see this this mixing of people, this back and forth um, that supposedly never took place during the Cold War, in fact, taking place all the time, whether it was repatriation or abduction or, in this case, uh, uh, hijacking. so they, they hijack an airplane in 1970. Their original goal was not to go to North Korea, but to go to Cuba, in where they wanted to get military training so they could return to Japan and begin this worldwide revolution. Uh, they knew that North Korea had uh, good relations with Cuba, and they thought if they could just get the plane to North Korea, then the North Koreans would give them safe passage onto Cuba. Well, Kim Il-sung had other ideas. He saw these uh, largely Tokyo University elite students uh, as as a real opportunity for the North. And so he made them stay, he made them permanent guests, really, uh, and indeed four of them are still there uh, in North Korea. Uh, He put them through all sorts of education, uh, in Juche philosophy, in Korean language, uh, they kept on asking for military training, and he he was reluctant to uh, to to do that, to give them that. He did give them eventually some sort of low level military training. They lived in a uh, an, another uh, community called the Revolutionary Village, uh, just outside of Pyongyang. And as uh, as things went on, um, what Kim Il Sung realized, and what they realized, was that their small numbers was not going to make the kind of vanguard first wave of uh, revolutionaries that um, they needed. So uh, they came up with an idea of recruiting, the word they used, uh, one could say abducting or tricking um, Japanese tourists and other students to go to North Korea to marry them. Now, at this time, there was a very healthy uh, admiration for North Korea. Uh, Every prefecture in Japan had a Juche study group in 1970. So there was a a very large supply of young people, men and women, 
who were interested in going to North Korea. And um, so through various techniques, they got a number of uh, women and some men to join them in Pyongyang. Uh, they all married and started having children. And this, this was, um, you know, part of this procreation uh, 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 project to create this sort of revolutionary class, um, some of the people that they recruited uh, to the North uh, did not go willingly. Uh, I've interviewed several people who went willingly and then had trouble leaving and uh, vice versa, but uh, they created this kind of, um, this sort of small army that was supposed to, you know, to play a major role in spreading Kim Il-sung's thought throughout uh, the rest of Asia. And Kim called them my golden eggs. These were these were the things that were going to uh, you know, uh, play that play that role and, and help him uh, spread the word. So they played both the, uh, an important role in terms of the, um, the 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 Japanese role in North Korea, and also um, it complicates the matter because they were directly and indirectly responsible for a number of the uh, abductions. Uh, one of the most famous being uh, Keiko Eremoto. Uh, a girl uh, from Osaka who disappeared from London and was never seen again. Right. Now, Kim Il-sung eventually dies in this story, and there's widespread starvation across North Korea. Among the people who are suffering are the children of Kaoru, um, who we uh, you know, now come back to. And we're going to come back to Kaoru and his family um, for the rest of the book. Now, in order to understand how we get back to him and how he gets back um, to Japan and how his children get back to him, we need to look at a moment um, of negoci- negotiations between Japan and North Korea. And you take us into this toward the end of the book. Now, Kim meets with Koizumi in Pyongyang. And they meet in this um, conversation uh, that gets very, very complicated. Okay, um, And so what I want to know for you, I'm just going to hit this back to you. What for you, um, and we, there's a lot we could talk about here in, the, in terms of this conversation and its significance. And there's a lot that listeners will find in the book, especially in chapter 17 and 18. But for you, what's most kind of interesting and important about the way that conversation played out for us to understand um, kind of what's going to happen when we come back to Kaoru and his family and his children and the conclusion of this story as we get to the end? Well, the um, North Korea was in dire straits after the death of Kim Il-sung in 1994. There were a series of crop failures. There was terrible flooding. Uh, there have been some very unwise decisions made by Kim uh, about, uh, de- you know, about foresting and um, and tears, tiered farming and things like that. It led to a, a lot of flooding and a lot of destruction so, and, and ultimately to famine. Uh, and Kim Jong-il uh, realized that he needed to have an ally of some sort, a rich ally, preferably. Uh, this was also the period in 2002 when George W. Bush declared North Korea as part of the axis of evil, uh, Iran and Iraq being the other two parts of the axis of evil. We know what happened, at least to Iraq. And so the North was very nervous and they uh, had played for years this brilliant uh, form of uh, uh, strategy of uh, cozying up to either the Russians or the Chinese or the Japanese or Americans and playing them off against each other. And this was another uh, uh, chapter in that relationship. So they uh, began negotiations, uh, secret negotiations with the Japanese that went on for quite some time. 
And the, the, uh, the negotiations were aimed at normalization of, of relations and ties uh, and the presumed large amount of money uh, that would come with such normalization. South Korea had, had uh, gained something like $10 billion in, um, in aid from uh, Japan in 1965 when it normalized relations and the North was uh, marking that up with an inflation and wanted that much or more. Uh, the sticking point for the Japanese came again and again was the, uh, the reputed or the, you know, the, the alleged abduction of Japanese that had been going around. There had been rumors for a while uh, this had happened. Uh, there was n- n- there no definite proof until in 1987. There was some indirect proof, but uh, they, they, the Japanese knew they had to resolve this before there could be any kind of going ahead. Uh, and this was a, a very difficult point for the North Koreans because every time the Japanese, any Japanese, had brought up uh, or had the temerity to bring up the abductions uh, in the previous years, the uh, North would would respond in high dudgeon. They would either literally Really get up and leave meetings in which it was mentioned, or uh, and denials were were uniform. So uh, this would require them to do a complete volt face and admit to something that they had denied. And what's more, the Japanese wanted them to free what whatever je- uh, abductees were still alive. Mm-hmm. So this was not a, a small thing to do, and um, it was yet part and parcel of these negotiations. And it was a little unclear at. So in, in, in uh, 2002, in September 15th, uh, uh, Junichiro Koizumi, prime minister of Japan, and his you know, retinue uh, show up in Pyongyang for, the, uh, for these negotiations. They're going to sign this thing called the Pyongyang Declaration, which is a whole series of agreements leading towards uh, normalization. And it's clear that, that Kim Jong-il hasn't really been told that he has to apologize uh, for the abductees. And um, just before the two of them meet, Kim and Koizumi, uh, one of uh, Koizumi's advisors is given a report that says that, that the abductees, uh, uh, the North Koreans admitted to taking 13, that eight of them had died mm-hmm. and that five were alive. And this was uh, very different from what they expected. I think they'd expected them all to be alive and released or something like that. And uh, so Koizumi gets this news immediately before he's supposed to meet with Kim and is just, you know, shaking with rage practically. And very quickly, uh, or maybe maybe half an hour into their conversation, he says, look, you know, I've gotten some very bad news about these abductees. Uh, this is really unacceptable. Uh, you know, what what's going on? And, and you can tell, or the negotiators I interviewed there, uh, could tell that uh, Kim is taken aback. I mean, no one speaks to Kim Jong-il this way, not even the prime minister of Japan. And there's a, there's a, uh, they take a recess and uh, finally Kim comes back and makes uh, something of an apology and an admission of guilt uh, to Koizumi. This was never uh, written down, but it was an oral uh, apology. And that makes it possible, they think, for the two countries to continue on their merry way towards normalization. This, of course, explodes in their face 
pieces because once the Japanese public finds out about the uh, first, this is the first, you know, co- confirmed information they've had about the abductions, which had been denied by the North Koreans, had been not affirmed by the most of the Japanese media, and and also not confirmed by the uh, Japanese government. So here, for the very first time, the Japanese public learns that. Not only had the abductions indeed been going on, as something I compare to, you know, learning that alien abductions had been taking place, you know, despite all the denials. So not only had there been abductions by the Japanese, but it turns out that the government, some people in the government knew about them at the time they were taking place and certainly in the aftermath of them. So this highly paternalistic state, which sort of, you know, uh, claimed to take care of the Japanese, uh, had in fact not been taking care of the Japanese. So Japanese public went nuts. And for for a time, the activists who surrounded the abduction movement, some of the people who led to uh, the disseminating of this information, um, were really calling the shots in Japanese foreign policy. Uh, the Japanese foreign minister, which is you know all powerful, uh, found that he had to run things by these uh, these activist groups, and the Japanese public just wouldn't hear of it. The idea that you would continue to negotiate and normalize relations with a state which had done this to your citizens and lied about it, and now you know half of them are dead, was just you know outrageous to the Japanese public, and it was impossible. And to this day, it's never been resolved, and no one's ever figured out a way back to get the freedom of any other abductees that may still be languishing in North Korea. Now, by the end of this story, we follow Kaoru Hasuike to his home. His children are ultimately sent to Japan to rejoin him and his wife. Um, And you end the story with a conversation with him. So can you, as a way of also bringing us to our conclusion as we look ahead to the end of our hour together, can you talk about what for you were some of the most important or transformative moments of talking with him after all of this. And you talk here about the importance of understanding his work in translation and as a translator, kind of understanding how he comes to terms, you know, to to the extent that he has with all of this by the end of the story. Well, Karo Hasuike is a a very uh, admirable uh, man, uh, very intelligent, uh, and he was the first of the abductees I talked to, and the one I talked to the most over the years. He had uh, returned, as you say, to Japan in 2002, ended up staying, finally got his his children back 18 months later, which must have been a harrowing 18 months, not knowing whether your children would be released by North Korea, and had largely supported himself in this time as a translator of Korean to Japanese uh, literature. He had was very skeptical about the press, didn't like the way the Japanese press had dealt with him and the abductees, also felt feared that they were putting the abductees who remained in, 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 in North Korea in jeopardy, and so was very reluctant to talk. I, I sent him a letter asking for an interview, and I got back uh, a, a response that said, uh, I'll talk to you on three conditions. First, we can't talk about the abductions. Second, I need to be paid. Third, I need to know exactly what you're going to write and where you're going to publish this. Well, as I told him, I said, well, fine. We, if we don't talk about deduction, that's fine. I'd love to talk to you about interpretation. Uh, as for payment, I can't pay you. American journalism really forbids that sort of thing. I wish I could, but I just can't. And third, I can't tell you what I'm going to do with this. I'm at the very beginning of this project. I'm still educating myself. So, you know, I'd be lying if I, if I did anything. And he said, okay, fine, come. 
And so I went up uh, to Niigata with my interpreter, uh, and we spent uh, a, a full day or close to a full day with him. And the conversation started off and was largely restricted to uh, a discussion, a really philosophical discussion about translation. And I've always been fascinated by translation, both you know metaphorically and, and actually. Uh, how do you translate between traditions? How do you translate between groups, uh, much less between languages? And you know, he was very eloquent about this because it, and also what I liked about the topic was it was really a great stroke of luck because it enabled him to speak about the abductions and to speak about his relationship with Korean culture, not more, but Korean culture and the relation between Japan and, and Korea um, in a metaphorical way without sort of, I mean, we did end up talking about the abductions, but, you know, without explicitly doing so. So, you know, he, 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 and, and it really became clear to me that he saw he developed a great fondness for Korean culture. Uh, he had developed a great love of Korean people. He met many ordinary Koreans in North Korea over the years who he, he found were very good people. Uh, so his hatred was towards the regime that had captured and, and, and imprisoned him, not towards the, the Korean people. And it extended to the Korean language. He loved the Korean language. He was very interested in the Korean history. And he described these ways that he felt that Korean culture and Japanese culture sort of all Commented each other, that they uh, supported each other, that the the reticence of the aesthetics of Japan, say, where the drama of a moment is often uh, heightened by understatement, was in some ways corrected or corrected by the uh, the sort of boisterousness of Korean culture, the kind of overstatement, the the uh, uh, what I always think of as almost the Americanness of Korean culture, the kind of outlandishness sometimes, and he spoke of these this this back. Balance, and he spoke of each of these cultures quite lovingly. So it was a, it was an opportunity, I think, of, to provide a safe area for him to talk about these abductions, and even even to talk about uh, what he. It's hard to choose the right word, not appreciated, but what he came away with that he could actually use in his life in Japan. Wonderful. And thank you so much for talking about that. I think I also wanted to kind of mark the importance of translation there. And I'm really um, grateful that you talked about that for us, because this is something that may not be obvious to listeners and potential readers from the book, um, that it does actually have a really thoughtful discussion of translation and how that fits in to all of this. Um, this is in chapter 22. So listeners who are particularly interested in that can find that discussion there. So, Robert, we're now at the end or toward the conclusion of our conversation. And there's, of course, a whole bunch of things that we haven't had a chance to talk about. Um, you just mentioned uh, in the context of Kaoru Hasuike's conversation, the importance of a theme um, that runs through the book. And I just wanted to mention that and then ask you um, if you wanted to mention anything else. And that's the theme of the intimate connection between Japanese and Korean culture, right? And this is something that comes up really throughout the book, throughout the historical chapters and moments, and also throughout your narrative. Given that, is there anything else um, or really anything at all that we haven't had a chance to talk about or to talk much about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps leave listeners with um, as they look forward to becoming readers? Well, yes, there, there's one thing and it really takes off from what you just mentioned, this intimate connection between Japanese and Korean culture. I think anyone who's honest with himself, who's spent considerable time in Japan and the Koreas, uh, knows right away that there is this intimate connection. 
it's not, not just historical, it's also contemporary, it's found in culture, it's found in sports, it's found in, in all sorts of other things. I mean, there's linguistic connections that are, you know, we could go spend all day talking about. And I felt like that was sort of the moment, uh, the point of tension in this story. You know, there's a sort of uh, a narrative that says, uh, that's very popular in Japan, that says, who are these crazy people, the North Koreans, and what did they do to us, the abductions, and, and why would they do such a thing? And there's a kind of superficial answer, which is, well, you know, they hate you because of a uh, colonial period. But in fact, we know all sorts of erstwhile colonial powers and, and, and people who are living under them who have come to terms with each other. Even the Taiwanese and the Japanese have very good relationships. So uh, I wanted to dig much deeper into that. And I felt like the, the, the if not the answer, then at least the beginning of an answer of why it is that there's so much animosity and so much similarity between Japanese and Korean culture came in an exploration of the sort of the what what Freud called the narcissism of small differences, the the, the determination uh, or the determinedness of both the Japanese and the Koreans to create a break with the other, uh, the other culture in the Japanese. One of the you know the breaks is with its sort of national identity. We are you know the post uh, Second World War national identity of Japan became. We are a pacifist nation of farmers and fishermen who have never really been interested in the outside world, which is belied by its entire history, certainly the history uh, before 1945. Uh, and in the North and, in, and also in the South, this idea of the, Kore- the pure Korean ethnic heritage. We are the most uh, homogeneous country on earth. And, you know, there's this sort of essential es- mystical Koreanness, which has been the same way for millennia. And, you know, the two, the two rhetorics are really very dependent on each other and intertwined with each other. And that was something I really wanted to tease out, not necessarily as a a way to solve the abductions, but I felt like there was a kind of intellectual history that was lurking in the background of the abductions that uh, I wanted to get at through an exploration of these, uh, these questions. Well, thank you so much for spending the time to do that, Robert. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me for um, writing the book and best of luck with whatever comes next. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us here at the podcast and we will catch you later.